So hello, folks, another edition of the Golf Guy uh, podcast. And uh, as we are on the eve of the U.S. Open returning to Torrey Pines in San Diego, I am uh, very honored to have with us Jim Vernon, who was um, among his other many accomplishments in the game, uh, you know, was USGA president um, when we were last at Torrey Pines, of course, with uh, the Tiger Rocco tilt um, back in 2008. But uh, Jim, thank you very much for making the time today. Appreciate it. Um, uh, glad to do it, Larry. It's looking forward to this. <laughs> So as, as am I. Uh, so maybe just to get started, uh, maybe a, a little uh, talk for a minute or two, if you would, about your your background in the game, kind of how you got started, interested in golf, and um, and how you got uh, started on what I think has been a lifelong journey in this wonderful game. Yeah, it, um, oddly, the way I got started, my father was a Hungarian immigrant who came to the United States uh, just before World War II. And after serving in the army during the war and he met my mom and married, they came out to the West Coast and settled out here in Los Angeles. Well, dad, um, very pretty smart and bright guy, but um, one of the things that drove him was to be assimilated into the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, we never explicitly talked about it, but I think his taking up the game somewhere in the late 50s, about 58, 59, which of course was the Arnold Palmer era, um, uh, was part of his assimilation process. So he started taking a few lessons at a a local executive course uh, over on, I think it was on Colfax Avenue in Studio City. It was a a Joe Kirkwood facility at the time. And after he took a few lessons, I have an older brother, two and a half years older, and he Dad offered Mike and me the opportunity to take lessons as well. So we did. And uh, we had a great instructor by the name of Art Stewart. Uh, and uh, we both took to the game. We both really loved it. We uh, you know, started playing and learning and, and doing all that. And it just took off from there. So uh, Dad then eventually uh, was able to join a local golf club lakeside where i still play and so after he joined there i went from playing all municipal courses and executive courses and had the privilege of uh, as long as i was well behaved um playing <laughs> playing at lakeside and i played on the junior team there and and got involved in a few tournaments and all but uh, that was the start of my golf career although i never reached a particularly high level of uh, achievement in the game itself that's great. Um, and of course, Lakeside, I know you're still at, and, and we, we can talk a little later of the wonderful renovation that Todd Eckenrode has done at Lakeside. Um, so, so like me, that's kind of how I got started. My dad, um, you know, got me started in the game and I have lots of wonderful memories of those um, long summer days where he would take off a few hours early from work and we'd go, you know, play nine holes together and nothing like a golf course late in the afternoon. So I know how much fun it is to sort of learn the game that way. Um, And um, it's, it's the best. Um, So, um, so you're, you're sort of interested in the game. You're, you're, you've gotten the bug, you're playing. Um, How, roll me forward a little bit. How did you end up sort of um, going from being someone who enjoyed the game a lot to um, getting involved in golf administration? I know you've spent a long time, 
uh, with in a lot of roles with the SCGA, the Southern California Golf Association here in Southern California. So how did that come about? It was really just a fluke, uh, Larry. Uh, I practiced law for a number of years, as I think you know, and I uh, right. uh, quit my partnership back in 84 and, and got into a different business. Uh, and one of my former partners is a member at LA Country Club, and he's a very good friend of mine to the, till the to today. Um, and uh, Peter invited me to play in a two-day member guest at LA Country Club. Well, it turned out that we were paired for the two days with uh, obviously an LA member and his guests, both of whom were on the board of directors of the SCGA. Mm. Um, we had a great time for two days. Uh, we, we certainly didn't uh, threaten to win any silver, but, um, <laughs> but we had a great time. And it turns out that the SCGA happened to be looking for someone to go on the board from Lakeside. It had been not a tradition, but there was a lot of participation on the board over the years uh, by uh, members of Lakeside, and they didn't have one at the time. Uh, I didn't think, frankly, I didn't think much of it at the time, but about two or three months later, I got a phone call and, uh, and was asked whether I'd be interested in interviewing to go on the board. So I did. Mm. Uh, I went on the board. And uh, coincidentally, Peter, uh, my uh, ex-partner from my law practice, went on from L.A. a couple months after that. So we both oh, went on neat. at about the same time. And we both uh, we both enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed it. I learned so much about golf administration, met some wonderful people, learned about running really higher level golf competitions, um, started my uh, uh, interest in the rules. And then uh, eventually went through the chairs uh, at SCGA. And in the course of that, I met a fair number of people from the USGA and um, was brought to their attention and went on a USGA committee after I went through the chairs at the SCGA. And a couple of years after that, uh, I got another phone call. And uh, at the time, as you know, Larry, uh, historically, the USGA has had, at least especially back then, leaned strongly to east of the Mississippi River, shall we say, yes. and Absolutely. the Northeast. Absolutely. And uh, when I got, when I received that phone call and was asked whether I'd be interested in interviewing for the USGA Executive Committee, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure my recollection is correct. There was nobody on the Executive Committee from west of the Mississippi. Wow. Well, I, I went back and interviewed at the US uh, Open uh, coincidentally, it was at Beth Page that year. I flew in, interviewed, and then, ah, and then, okay. then flew back out. And uh, they were very interested in someone from the Western United States. And in my undergraduate training, before I went to law school, was in mechanical engineering, which I okay. still have a uh, strong interest in. And they were also looking for somebody who might get involved on the equipment side, since they seem to have a few equipment issues back then, which, <laughs> many of which. So that was probably, let me just say, that must have been, I'm trying to find the, think of the dating. So the Ping Groove controversy was probably in the 90s, right? So that's yes. in the wake of all that, right? So yeah, that, that is, was, Yeah, it is in the wake of that, Larry. And it, all that had really been resolved, but, uh, and the USGA you know, got through it very, very well. But there right. was still a great concern um, about in the future, 
trying to anticipate uh, what might be coming down the road and what the USGA should do about it. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I, I, I uh, was extended an invitation to go on the USGA executive committee and accepted. And uh, after, I think it was a year, um, I then was actually asked to chair what became the Equipment Standards Committee. Oh, wow. Uh, which included, of course, I mean, before that it was implements and balls, but now equipment standards. And that uh, USGA had a great staff in that area, a wonderful research center. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the, the topic itself and the issues. So I jumped into that and spent a lot of time on that, um, as well as then really expanding my role in the rules and, and working on championships. Eventually, I, you know, I began through the chairs and became president uh, for 2008 and 2009. And uh, 2008, of course, was our uh, last, that wonderful week at Torrey Pines. It sure was. Um, so let me, before we get to Torrey Pines, I'm just interested. I hadn't realized you, you know, I knew about your mechanical engineering background and, and um, I hadn't sort of connected the dots. That makes perfect sense. You would have involved in the equipment stuff. Um, that's, that's a... That's a tricky issue, right? I mean, and, and you know, they, there's still challenges, right, to this day. Of course, you know, the distance report came out, you know, last year and a lot of work spent on that. And um, it's interesting that you were involved in that. That's a, that's a challenging issue to this day, uh, right, I think, for, for, the, for the game, not just the it game. Is. For the game it is. Well. And, you know, the distance issue involves so many different factors uh, and so many different effects as well. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the Attention seems to focus on the ball, and that's certainly the easiest, probably the easiest thing you could do if you do are interested in shortening things up. But it really involves all the so many other things. Um, I mean, our modern drivers are—they've uh, capped the, uh, the spring effect, um, right. and they've now right. capped the moment of inertia. But there are great leaps uh, between 2003, uh, when I got on the executive committee, and 2000. Uh, eight or early nine when I left. Um, and during that time, uh, the ball had already been, we already kind of resolved that we would stick with the ball for a while, but the, the, the clubs still were evolving very much. We had the grooves that we worked on and I was uh, certainly uh, well involved in that. And Dick Ruggie, who was our head of the uh, uh, equipment uh, standards department at the time uh, was really good. He had great, just great people on staff that really knowledgeable, interested, great to work with. Uh, the issues were in good hands from a technical standpoint, but obviously it involves more than technical. A lot of policy issues involved, uh, including sustainability and all those other things. Yeah. Tr tricky stuff to be sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny when you talk about the club evolving, I, um, uh, I, I remember when the Big Bertha came out, um, and that was viewed as so gigantic. And today, that would be, you know, probably a, just a fairway wood. I mean, it's, it's yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. it's amazing. You know, I, 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 um, uh, I, I've gone down, um, you know, over the years to Oceanside, where the Titleist Fitting Performance Institute is, and they used to have this display when you walked in. I don't know if they, last time I was there, I don't think I saw it, but where they had this, all the drivers over the years, 
like right next to each other and you could just see this thing growing and you know like the old 975 that tiger started with all the way up yeah. to the 465 cc guys <laughs> that we have today it's just it is amazing how the equipment has changed over time so but very interesting so so you were there so you, you alluded to tory pines and of course you know we had had um um not a lot of um i think it had been what 60 years i think since this um we're going to include san diego and southern california as you and i are sitting here in la today but right. <laughs> it had been 60 years since um there'd been the open in southern california i think since um probably riviera back in 48 and you're there for 2008 so that was neat and of course you know you uh alluded to beth page you know and david fay had made a big effort to sort of get some of the municipal courses public access courses into the into the U.S. Open stuff, Beth Page being the notable one in 2002, Tory fitting that as well. So um, need to be at a municipal course, need to be in Southern California. And then, so you're president for that week at, at that time. Um, and that, of course, is such a memorable U.S. Open with Tiger. And we see him limping with the whole story about the leg doesn't come out until till afterwards. But you were there, and I assume you must have been walking around with the final group, or with at least with the playoff. Or how did that work? Well, it, it's interesting, Larry. Uh, if you look back at what actually happened that week, um, USGA for years had sort of followed a sort of pretty much of a mold in in pairings uh, for the U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. And that week, that year, we decided to try something different. So instead of spacing out all the really top names, um, I mean, you'd have a traditional group with the U.S. Amateur and U.S. Open former or the reigning U.S. Open champion playing together. But that year we did something different. And for the first two rounds, you you know, whether it's talk today about uh, Kepka and DeChambeau, and of course, they're <laughs> not they are not being paired together this this week. But uh, back then there was a little there was Tiger and Phil. And right. they really hadn't played together in a major championship. Right. And uh, there was, a, you know, there was a little tension between them. Uh, they were both, yeah. you know, close. Um, Tiger was center stage the whole time. And Phil was trying to uh, join him there. And so yeah. that, that right. you know, 2008, for the first two rounds, we paired Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and Adam Scott, one, two, three in the world. One, two, three. I remember this in the world right rankings, right? And uh, that our TV partners were very happy about it. Um, and <laughs> but sure. what? But logistically, we knew we had a problem. Everybody was kind of going to turn out for that group, and so sure. uh, what we did for the first first round, especially, uh, we even though the USGA president normally wouldn't go out in that first round with a group like that. Uh, usually there are a lot of meetings going on, whatever. They wanted some experienced hands with that group because uh, we didn't know how many people would show up. We knew it would be a lot. Um, but anyway, we wanted some experienced hands out there, uh, both from a rules standpoint, but really as a, from a crowd control standpoint. So we could really work with the marshals and security forces. And sure. I swear, I, you know, I walked out to that first tee and there was just a mass of humanity down both sides of the fairway. There were so many photographer, photographers and journalists. It was unbelievable. And then, of course, all the people. So it was bedlam. And, wow. uh, and then Tiger comes out, and he is clearly injured. From I mean, he is limping from first stroke on. Right. And uh, we met, you know, he double bogeys the first hole, if I remember correctly, and uh, and then manages to get it together more in the back. But 
as the round goes on, he is suffering. Um, he goes down. I mean, I watched him hit a tee shot and he just, whenever he put that weight on the left side, on his left knee and leg, um, it, it, he was in pain, it, clearly in right. pain. And it got worse as right. the round went on. Um, to the point when I, when we finished the round, and of course, some of the people have been back watching it uh, and hearing about it back in the USGA headquarters and hospitality. And, you know, they came up to me and, and others who were with them and said, well, what, what do you think? And I honestly did not know. I didn't think Tiger would play the next day. He was in so wow. much pain. Wow. And, uh, but it is a testament to him. Yeah. Hands down. I don't know of anybody else who could have completed the first two rounds or, and certainly seven, two in the 91 holes right. and, and on top of it, win. I, I, that's the strength of character and will. Uh, I have never seen anything close to that. Yeah. He is amazing in that respect. No, no doubt about it. So, um, so we, so we go through, uh, the first two rounds and, and, and he's making it through and, and we get out to, Sunday, and I'm I'm not remembering this with perfect accuracy, but I I know coming down, I can I, I'm I'm actually trying to remember. I don't remember if Tiger was in the last group on Sunday or not. Um, I, I was he? Or, I don't know, you yeah, he was. Remember. He was. Okay, yeah. so were you out there with him on Sunday too? Then in that final. Yes, group? I was. It turns out I was with okay. him for three rounds. That first round Sunday, and then of course the playoff on Monday. Playoff round. So, and the, you know, and Rocco is sitting there right behind the 18th green, and Tiger, yeah. you know, hits that. You know, he's, he, 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 that's a reachable par five for him, but he 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 doesn't. He hits his second shot in the rough. He hits really a phenomenal wedge shot um, from that lie to what I don't know, probably 12 feet. And those greens were, you know, I mean that's. The, the, late in the day on a Sunday, you know, with those type of greens that we have, you know, on the coast in California, there were a few bumps there. And, um, you know, I just, I will remember, I mean, you're out there. I remember watching it on TV and, you know, Dan Hicks, you know, kind of iconic call, you know, when that ball tumbles in, you know, expect anything different, but um, that was just an amazing thing, but you were actually out there. That must've been an amazing experience to see him come down the stretch and then, and make that when he knew he had to make it to survive to, be a tie in the playoff yeah the, the whole that whole final round was really incredibly exciting because the, the pendulum was swinging back and forth you know Rocco would take a stroke or two lead and then Tiger would come back and take a lead and then Tiger would make a bogey and uh, Rocco you know would have the lead and and that's the way it came down to the 72nd hole Rocco was in Tiger uh, really surprisingly hit that second shot into the rough and from right. what I from what I read today, uh, or sometime yesterday or today, that he ha happened to get a pretty decent lie in the rough and an old divot. Um, so uh, uh, he was talked into hitting his sixty degree wedge, I guess, and then, like you said, hit it to twelve feet, and twelve of the bumpiest feet that you could have, you know, on the seventy right. second hole on Poa Greens. The ball was airborne. Oh, right, exactly on the ground we all I guess we've all seen the the, the up you know the close-up of it and I was sitting uh, actually sort of uh, standing and sitting behind the green as he was his putting and as he was making the putt and 
as we went in, we all just had to get up there and, and get to him and, 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 you know, get him in and then start telling him about the playoff the next day, which was, which was pretty great. And then I, again, I was with him the uh, entire playoff round with, you know, walking with Mike Davis, our uh, head of championships right. and now it's right. uh, retiring as our C CEO. And uh, that was another fascinating round in itself with the, the swings back and forth. Um, it was pretty good. I tell you one, one little incident though. Uh, yeah. I, I think I, it may have been reported, but uh, as we we're getting ready for the playoff, uh, you know, players were Brocco and uh, uh, Tiger were there, and of course we had a, so so many more fans than we normally would have for that, you know, fifth day playoff. But Tiger's on the practice putting green in front of the lodge, um, you know, just doing part of his warm ups, and of course he's in his red shirt. And again, and uh, and then I look up and there comes Rocco walking from the from, I guess, it was the parking lot, but walking right behind by the lodge, uh, you know, starting his preparation. And he, of course, he's wearing a red shirt. Right. Tiger, just, Tiger, Tiger looked up and gave him a look and said, I, th I heard it, but it was pretty much under his breath and sort of gave Tiger the motion or gave Rocco yeah. motion. Really? <laughs> and, and Rocco just shrugged and smiled and went on his way. It, it was fabulous. <laughs> Great start to the playoff. Hey, for, for sure. And then, of course, you know, we're tied even then um, and, um, and, and end up going, going the extra hole. So, um, uh, and it's funny, you know, it's, um, I'm just sort of thinking other times in history, right, where, um, maybe it's not a perfect analogy, but, you know, because Rocco has had a notable career, but I mean, that was obviously Rocco's, you know, brush with, you know, winning a major. Um, and, um, uh, you know, for so it looked like he was going to do it, but, you know, Tiger being Tiger and, you know, we've seen that, you know, other times in the U S open, right. Mike Donnell and Harold Irwin, another yeah. one where, you know, I just puts it together for four days and, and, but, you know, it didn't quite. And I actually think of them as I'm thinking about that, that had the playoff. And I think they even went an extra hole in that one too. So um, uh, very similar, but, but it's interesting these days now. So we're not going to, if we have a tie Sunday, no more um, 18 hole playoffs. Um, and nope, uh, we actually nope. just had that up at Olympic, of course, with the women's open. So um Curious, um, your thoughts on that. I totally can appreciate the desire to get that winner, you know, Sunday and stuff. But it, it's interesting because we've had so many notable playoffs over the years. And, of course, other majors, right? Masters used to have an 18-hole playoff. They don't anymore. So it's it's not um, unique to sort of give it up in British Open as their aggregate. But curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's it's a change. And I, um, I'm a sort of a traditionalist and uh, we sort of hung on to that 18 hole playoff in a sense as long as we could. But there are so many competing factors. Um, a, you have to get all these volunteers and all these people back out to the course for another day. Um, you right. have the players themselves who may have other commitments uh, that week, but of course they'll forego those for it. But it is, um, there's the U.S. Open is such a production that to take it for another day um, is really a, takes a, a financial commitment and a manpower commitment that uh, you just have to balance against what you're achieving. And uh, the, the playoff we have now will we'll finish on Sunday, you know, weather permitting, which will not be a problem in San Diego. 
Um, but uh, it's definitive. It's you know it's better than certainly better than a sudden death. At least gives you two two holes of aggregate. Um, so I, I you know I, I really from a my own standpoint kind of like the uh, the eighteen holes. But from a practical standpoint, this uh, there are a lot of good reasons to to do this uh, uh, two hole aggregate playoff. Yeah. No. I. I think that I think that's fair, and I, and that's right. And as you said, I mean, I think you know, one by one, all the other majors had sort of given it up, and you, the U.S. Open had hung on to it. Um, but uh, I, that that makes perfect sense. Um, so we'll we'll see if we'll get anything this exciting um, this time around at Tory. Let me um, let me ask you this, Jim. You know, um, it's it's we were alluding to earlier about the U.S. Open sites, and and you know, you mentioned Beth Page, which you went out when you interviewed in 2002 and that sort of started, um, uh, you know, the trend towards, you know, seeing if we could get some uh, public access sites. And I, I would sort of put Pebble is phenomenal. Pinehurst is phenomenal. Those aren't really strictly public access in the sense of, you know, you <laughs> got to get a wheelbarrow full of cash and probably stay at a resort there to sort of get it. But true public access like Bethpage, like Tory. Um, Chambers Bay um, comes to mind, um, Aaron Hills, I guess, maybe, but, you know, a few other ones. There was a trend um, to sort of try to have the U.S. Open go to that a little more. Now it sort of seems, the sense I have, just again, just looking at the sites, is maybe a trend sort of more back towards some of the traditional ones, it seems like. And maybe we don't quite have a rota the way the British Open does, but I know you folks, the USGA, you know, have moved um, some facilities or are moving to Pinehurst and, you know, I'm calling that an anchor site. So it seems like maybe a pendulum shifting a little back towards maybe more traditional courses is what it is, what it seems like uh, from where I'm sitting, but curious what your thoughts are. Well, of course, I'm, I'm not involved in the siting of uh, the, the U.S. Open anymore. Right, right. Um, but the, the first and foremost, Larry, uh, for the U.S. Open, we want the finest courses in the country. You know, whether they're public, resort, or private, um, there there's a certain standard you just have to meet before you're even considered for for a U.S. Open. Sure. Um, and it was certainly um, at a time when the USGA is emphasizing accessibility, diversity, uh, sustainability. Um, municipal golf courses are important, and it's, it's yeah, it is. Uh, satisfying to see the U.S. Open go to a, to a course like Torrey Pines, um, especially when you consider of all the, you know, the money that's generated uh, uh, by the U.S. Open. And in, in this case, we'll be going to so many golf-related worthy uh, entities and programs in the San Diego area. You know, San Diego was just a golf-mad community. And sure. so, so it's great to promote the game that way, too, because, the, you know, the uh, we, the, the players obviously earn their uh, uh, whatever they earn when they play, but uh, the Open generates so much more money that we can then support our other programs, including those in the communities in which we hold the Open. Um, so as far as you know, going back to uh, some of the historic courses, uh, the sighting seems to, to be heading a little bit in that way, but I think given how important municipal golf is, uh, especially in the game, and we both and we talked about our our origins uh, and yeah. early days, and um, there there will certainly I think uh, continue to be a place for municipal uh, 
But at the same time, always in the forefront will be the best golf courses and the right. best U.S. It is, and, and on top of that, the, the other thing that uh, gets overlooked, and it was one of the problems in citing an a, uh, Open, I suppose, in Los Angeles, the footprint for the U.S. Open has gotten so big um, yeah. that there are, this, for all the great courses that might be able to host a U.S. Open, um, there are only so many of them that have the facilities there or nearby or the acreage that you can actually run a U.S. Open there and of the type that we have now for years. So that's a, a little bit of a limiting factor, uh, more than a little, is, it is a limiting factor. But um, they, the importance of municipal golf to the USGA, just, you, you just can't escape that. It is important. It is so important from accessibility, sustainability, and uh, growing the game, uh, all those things. For sure. In fact, maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about growing the game more generally, um, because we've all been through this um, pandemic. Hopefully we're getting near the end of it. Um, but um, I think we've all, at least I know for myself, while observing things in Los Angeles, talking to other folks in the game here, the, there's just been a huge spike in the number of golf rounds that have been played both at public and private courses over the last year because of, you know, golf is maybe the ideal socially distanced sport. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I know at the, uh, where I play um, here on the West side of Los Angeles, I mean, it's a, you know, a huge increase in the number of rounds over the last year, year over year. And I think that's been similar at, at other facilities. So um, we've got this, um, Spike that we've had, and so you know, an opportunity may be sort of to hopefully keep some of these people involved. You know, as as if we get past the pandemic and all the other recreational and other opportunities come back, that hopefully um, keep them involved in golf. And curious your thoughts on that. I also know I think you've been involved in the SCGA Foundation over the years, which has a lot of wonderful programs here in terms of trying to grow the game as well. So. Um, seems like there's an opportunity here that we've got people interested in, and, and um, the challenge, I guess, is maybe to keep that interest going forward. You know, absolutely the case. And it's uh, certainly not a given that we'll be able to do it, Larry. <clears throat> um, certainly, there's been the spike in rounds uh, across facilities of all kinds, municipal, private uh, resorts have not been maybe quite as much uh, because of some access issues there. Um, but I don't think the, the fact that we have seen this, this spike, this surge in, uh, in, in number of rounds and all, um, is, is, is a little precarious because as people go back to work, more people will be going back to the office, um, yeah. although a lot of people don't want to. Uh, they've, got, they've <laughs> kind of been enjoying their flexible schedules, yeah. and, and, I, and, and that... I think that will maintain some of the increase we've seen. Uh, some of that flexibility will remain. But really, we've got to focus on if we really want to grow the game and, and sustain what we have just accomplished, we've got to make the game more welcoming. Um, got to keep costs down. We've got to yep. keep accessibility, We've um, especially with public golf. Um, and, and frankly, we need to improve the experience. One of the things USGA has been so good at, uh, in addition to all the sustainability and whatever uh, 
uh, money they've spent and things they've accomplished and continue to um, is improving that user experience. They've done some great data analysis, collection and analysis on how to basically get golfers around the golf course faster so that you don't have six rounds. And they've been working with facilities to demonstrate what the data shows and mm. to demonstrate that if instead of just pressing as many people out on that course as you know, quickly as you can, if you actually dial back and space out tee times more, you can actually get more people through the course over the entire day. And, and instead of five and a half, six hour rounds, you may have four and a half hour rounds. Uh, and the user experience, of course, then is much better and you're much more likely to see those people come back. Uh, in addition, it's a lot easier, I think, you know, when you're heading out from home, if you know your round's going to take, you know, four and a half hours rather than six hours. Um, and in addition, I mean, there are things like showing that if uh, making more nine hole courses or six hole courses or uh, certain times of the day, 12 hole courses, however, uh, how there is there is a demand for that. And people tend to think of 18 holes, but once they get out there and do it, Sometimes 12 holes are really good um, and you're ready to go. You're ready to go hit the 13th hole instead of the 19th. I, I totally agree. It's it's um, those are all great points. It's interesting about the data because, um, you know, I think of, uh, you know, Rancho Park, which is, you know, such a wonderful historic municipal uh, facility here in Los Angeles, um, a wonderful course. But yeah, six hour rounds are kind of, unfortunately, you know, not unusual. So um, that's very interesting on the data. And I totally agree on the nine hole stuff. I mean, that's how I grew up with the game. I mean, you know, in the summertime, you know, as I was alluding to earlier, my dad would leave work maybe a little early, but we wouldn't have time for 18 holes. But with, you know, mm -hmm. a later um, daylight savings times, we'd certainly be able to get in nine holes. And that was great. That was fun. That's how I started the game. And I think it's, you know, you can go after work and, and or what have you and um, do something in two hours and have a wonderful experience. So I totally agree with you on the nine hole stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think beyond that, Larry, uh, I mean, that is, that is all important. But at this, we still have to work on the base as well. And yeah. um, there are barriers to playing and the USGA and the SCGA and its foundation are doing what they can to break down some of those barriers. And uh, we have the first tee, you have, uh, you know, girls golf, drive, uh, drive, chip and putt. And I know in the SCGA Foundation, we are setting up programs in what are clearly, you know, some people use the term underserved neighborhoods and they are so well received. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we, we always struggle for, for funding and we've been pretty successful so far. Uh, but the more that we we more assets that uh, resources we can find, the more people we can get involved, and it's been really rewarding for my work on the SCGA Foundation to see um, kids come in and their families come in supporting them, um, and then become what hopefully you know at the longitudinal studies are not long enough at this point, but hopefully right. we're creating some lifelong golfers and and. Uh, there's that rough period when you get out of college and you're starting your career that tends to break down. And we're even trying to address that. You get some programs for, for young men and women uh, to be able to continue playing golf, despite the fact they're at that really time uh, constrained 
part of their lives where they're starting careers and families both in many cases. So, but uh, I, I am very proud of both what the USGA is doing and what the SCGA and its foundation are doing in, in those regards. Yeah, no, that that is great. And and having met Kevin, you know, who, who's the foundation director and, and had the good opportunity to spend 18 holes playing with him, I know all the pro, at least a sense of some of the programs that are being done under the SCGA Foundation auspices here in Southern California, and it, it's great stuff. So, well, listen, Jim, I, I know that you're, uh, as always, busy and, and that you're going to get ready to um, uh, head down to Torrey, um, and um, it should be, um, I'm sure, another wonderful tournament. Um, uh, there's nothing like the U.S. Open. I can see it'll be, I know it'll be challenging. I, I always remember, you know, um, Sandy Tatum's, you know, wonderful line when, you know, the, the press would say, gee, are you trying to embarrass the players? He said, no, we're just trying to, we're not embarrassing the greatest players anymore. We're just trying to identify them. Um, so and true. It's the ultimate so. test. It's, it's the ultimate test in golf. So um, I, uh, I, I know you'll enjoy it down there. I'll be watching on TV and uh, thank you again so much for the time. Really appreciate it. And, um, you know, good luck with the tournament down there. Thanks. Thank, thank you so much, Larry, for uh, having me on. And I am looking forward to driving down tomorrow and uh, hope I'm not sure we can uh, duplicate 2008, but I know it will be a, a great uh, championship. It's uh, really looking forward to it. Great. Thanks.